Well, howdy. I'm Mick Sullivan, and this is my show. I call it The Past and the Curious, and that's what other people call it, too, so we all agree. Thank you for joining us. If you're new, hope you like it. If you are not new, well, let me tell you, I have some big news to share, but I'm not going to do it until next month. You're going to have to wait. That will mark the fifth year of this show, which we all agree is called The Past and the Curious. I'll be letting the cat out of the bag early for Patreon members. So if you're a member, stay tuned on there. If not, just wait till next month. And uh, I think you'll be excited. It's going to be really, really cool. So um, this episode is a fun episode. It's about big ideas. And it's about two people who had big ideas. One was a good idea. The other, not so much. But both ideas led to really interesting things, no matter what. So, with that, let's get up and get going. Sometimes you have an idea you believe is so good that you are literally bursting at the seams. And Thaddeus Sobieski Constantine Lowe nearly burst at the seams when he read the weather report in Cincinnati on April 19, 1861. A clear sky would put him one step closer to making his dream come true. One step closer to realizing his bold idea's potential. One step closer to proving the impossible was possible. In light of the pleasant weather report, he called off the fundraising banquet thrown in his honor so he could make preparations and try to get a good night's sleep. But all the while, he was bursting at the seams. Better he burst at the seams than the balloon that he'd be piloting in the morning. Thaddeus Sobieski Constantine Lowe had a long name, and he knew it. So instead of waiting for people to spit the full thing out, he'd tell people to call him Thaddeus, or TSC, or Professor TSC Lowe. That last moniker, Professor Lowe, spoke to how he saw himself, and how some others did too. Clever, thoughtful, inventive, and learned. But he was not a professor. He actually had little schooling past elementary school. But that didn't stop him from learning. His scientific mind was not limited by the lack of formal teachers. Countless books were read around the fireplace after work was done on the family's New Hampshire farm. Once, after leaving the farm to help his brother in the shoe business in Boston, he saw a demonstration and a lecture by a chemist who was traveling around in a sort of educational sideshow hustle. And when the chemist asked for a volunteer, Thaddeus jumped at the chance, and before long, he was an official part of the traveling show. The idea of gases really got Thaddeus excited. He knew that certain gases could make things float. Balloons were curiosities, but not radically new by the mid-1800s. But he felt that humans had only scratched the surface of ballooning's potential. He thought big, or at least far, and soon began to work on an idea to pilot a balloon across the Atlantic Ocean. Through his limited abilities in research and meteorology, he believed that there was a wind current at a certain altitude that traveled west to east, and if he could just find it with a big enough, floaty enough balloon, well, he could follow that breeze all the way to France, or England, or Spain, or Iceland, or wherever he wound up. Balloons don't offer a ton of directional control now, and they certainly didn't back in the 1800s. But this was no bother to Thaddeus. 
By the late 1850s, he had built a few balloons, which he filled with buoyant gas to make them float. Wherever he was, he'd offer curious and brave people a flight alongside him in the basket for a fee. The money went to funding his goal, building a balloon capable of crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Finally, with the help of his father and wife, he began work on his biggest balloon yet, a balloon he called the City of New York. Like all of his other balloons, this one was made of silk from India and very lightweight cordage, but then covered in his own secret recipe for varnish. He claimed that this Colonel Sanders-level top-secret coating would help keep the gas inside the balloon for up to two weeks. The balloon known as the City of New York, though, was unlike his other balloons because of how large it was, 103 feet in diameter. The first attempt was less than spectacular because in New York, where the launch was planned, they couldn't supply enough gas to fill the balloon. Without enough pressure, it looked like a half-filled whoopee cushion. And that was a pretty accurate auditory representation of that first try. I need gas. Oh, I know where you can get a lot of gas. Are you making a joke? Because I don't have time for it. I really need gas. Yeah, I'm serious. I can get you lots of gas. Okay, but like real gas? Not, you know, gas. Yeah, totally. Real gas. Come to Philly. We got you covered. Excuse me. So he headed to Philly, hoping for better circumstances. And, um, more gas. They had it. And once the city of New York was finally filled, the balloon burst at the seams. It was bad news for sure, but better that it happened with the basket on the ground than somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean, right? He soon tried again, but his repairs weren't stable, so he packed it away for the season and waited to try again. Meanwhile, an important man at the Smithsonian Institution liked what he was doing and thought that he could help. This guy figured that if Thaddeus was right, and there was a west-to-east jet stream somewhere up there that could carry a balloon to who knows where, especially across the Atlantic Ocean, well, then the government should probably help. He just needed Thad to prove that it was possible. Okay, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go west, young man. West to Pennsylvania. Set sail on your balloon and land it on the east coast. Ideally, Washington, D.C. Then we'll talk. Everyone will want a piece of you. And I think you're going to find all the funding you need. The East Coast, you say? Well, I think I'm going to land this thing on Lincoln's lawn. The White House? That's what I said. That sounds rad, Thad. I'll help you raise some funds. Do you need anything else? A whole lot of gas. He was also advised to change the name. Soon, the city of New York became the Great Western. But it wasn't the Great Western that set off from Cincinnati in April of 1861, after that good weather report. Lowe chose to run the test with one of his smaller balloons. So, lifting off with a balloon known as the Enterprise, he set off with the goal of rising high, catching a current of air, and then landing that sucker right on Abraham Lincoln's front yard. The world would be his oyster then. Now, Washington, D.C. is 401 miles away from Cincinnati, as the crow flies. And that's exactly how Professor Lowe was planning to fly himself. He figured it would be a matter of hours. 
Around hour five of the trip, he decided to get a better sense of where he was since it was mostly guesswork on his part. Lowering the balloon close to the ground, he looked for distinguishing characteristics and tried to determine the identity of any towns in the area. No luck, but then he saw some farmers down below and he called down to them. Hello down there! Wait, where are you going? Don't run away! I'm a man, just like you! Look, can you at least tell me where I am? Virginia! Hearing Virginia was enough. Oh, sorry. Hearing Virginia was enough for him to feel like he was on track. Thaddeus figured that he would be approaching the capital city in the northeastern part of the state soon. Was he right? He was worse than right. He was wrong. Virginia is a big state, and he was in the southern part when his flyby frightened the fearful farmers. Four hours later, he had to set the balloon down, confused by his failure. But he wasn't as confused as the South Carolinians, who soon approached, ready to shoot holes in the balloon and maybe a few other places. At first, the surprised people on the ground thought that he might have been in league with the devil, but when they realized he was from the north, they figured he was an airborne spy, which was worse in their eyes. You see, South Carolina led the southern states by becoming the first to try to secede from the United States of America in order to protect their right to enslave other human beings. In fact, less than a week before Lowe landed, the opening shots of the Civil War rang out at nearby Fort Sumter. The American Civil War had begun, and Thaddeus Sobieski Constantine Lowe was in enemy territory after landing some crazy unfamiliar floating vehicle. So you can understand why they thought he was a spy. For days, he was held against his will in fear of his life. But finally, he was able to convince them that he was not a spy, but a scientist. Once free, he hightailed it to Kentucky as fast as a frightened rabbit on the first train out of town. And though he didn't wind up on Lincoln's lawn the way he expected to, he did kind of sort of make his prediction come true. Word of his 900-mile South Carolinian odyssey spread fast, and one of Lincoln's most trusted cabinet members, and the man whose face is on the American $10,000 bill, Salmon P. Chase, invited him to bring a balloon to D.C. He saw potential, not in transatlantic flight, but in assistance with the American Civil War. On October 4, 1861, Thaddeus and his balloon were 500 feet above the National Mall in Washington, D.C. From that height, he was able to see the position of the Confederate troops over the Potomac River. This was a game changer. No one had ever been able to see the movement of the enemy from the sky until now. But armed with a telescope, Thaddeus could see for miles. Not only that, he rigged up a telegraph cable which he drooped out of his tiny balloon basket down through the DC skyline and it entered the open window of the White House. 
Thaddeus transmitted his report in Morse code with his telegraph device from the basket, and the electronic pulses traveled the cable where the operator in the White House received it and read it out loud to an astounded President Lincoln. It was the first aerial telegraph communication in history. Lincoln saw the value immediately and soon named Thaddeus Lowe as the chief aeronaut of the U.S. Army Balloon Corps. And for the first few years of the war, Thaddeus led a team of dozens of men and several balloons as they gathered intelligence from the skies above the battlefields. Mostly active during the Peninsula Campaign in Virginia, the Balloon Corps would rise above the treetops to gather information on the enemies miles away. Using flags, Morse code, or even dropping weighted messages from above, they shared their info with the ground troops. In some cases, this allowed parts of the battle to be fought without American soldiers even seeing their targets. Oftentimes, the balloons were the target of enemy fire, but they typically were able to fly out of range and not be in grave danger. There are no recorded injuries for members of the Balloon Corps. But for a number of reasons, the Balloon Corps disbanded as the war raged on. By 1863, the balloons were mostly grounded. Thaddeus went on with his inventive life of big ideas, though. To keep gas available for balloons, he invented a process of manufacturing hydrogen gas from steam and coke, which is the fuel reduction of coal. He was also a pioneer in refrigeration, which was another development that helped change the world. The early ice-making machines he invented kept food, drinks, and people cold. And they made him a millionaire. Thaddeus Sobieski Konstantin Lowe never achieved his wild dream of ballooning across the Atlantic. But in 1863, he was visited by a German soldier who had come to America as an observer during the Civil War. This man's name was Ferdinand von Zeppelin, and he was fascinated by Lowe's creation and lofty goals. The U.S. general in charge would not allow the curious Zeppelin to accompany Lowe for a balloon flight, which would have been Zeppelin's very first flight. Instead, Lowe made arrangements for one of his former assistants to take the man up for a tethered flight in Minnesota, and that airborne experience would be the inspiration for the German soldier's later invention, the Zeppelin airship. Of course, the Zeppelin airship, which resembles a modern-day blimp, would achieve the original dream. In 1919, a Zeppelin airship crossed the Atlantic Ocean, and it did so in only 48 hours. Six years before, Professor Lowe had drawn his last breath, but somewhere, somehow, he probably felt validated. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's time for You Have 30 Seconds and Michaela Hill, now of New Mexico, sent one of my favorite people from history. Dig this. Bass Reeves was the first black deputy U.S. Marshal. He was born a slave in Texas. He was such a good marksman that his owner took him along to fight in the Civil War. One night, Bass escaped and lived with the tribes in the Indian Territory, learning their languages. In 1875, Bass became a deputy U.S. Marshal. He brought over 3,000 outlaws to justice. He was a great shot to trick outlaws and believed in justice. Bass Reeves sounds like a legend, but he was a real-life hero of the American West. Very, very cool indeed. It does sound like a legend. Well, I mean, he was a legend, but not in that sense. Dude was a legend. Anyway, thank you so much. And if you have a, you have a, you have a, you have a 30 seconds, then send that one in and, uh, you know, find the instructions at thepastandthecurious.com. Can't wait to hear what you come up with. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. That's what I said. That's what you heard. It's quiz time. Here's question number one. In 1937, over the skies of New Jersey, a famous Zeppelin airship disaster took place. Do you know the name of the Zeppelin airship that caught fire and came crashing down to Earth? That ship was known as the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg had made 10 voyages already from America to Europe. And on this last trip, many of the passengers were headed to London for the coronation of King George and Queen Elizabeth. But a fire on board the ship was disastrous due to the hydrogen gas contained within the dirigible. Okay, question number two. The Goodyear blimp is the most famous blimp in all of blimpdom. Care to guess when the first Goodyear blimp took to the skies? The Goodyear company actually had a contract to build Zeppelins for the U.S. military, the first one taking to the skies in 1917. But the first civil ship, the one lifted by helium and bearing the name Goodyear, took off in 1925. There have always been several blimps, a fleet of flyers, if you will. The first one was known as the Pilgrim, and for many years the blimps were named after the winning boats of the American Cup Yacht Race. Okay, and here is your third and final question. Along with rich industrialist John D. Rockefeller and illusionist and magician Harry Keller, Professor T.S. Silo is said to have been a huge influence on which famous character created by author L. Frank Baum. Now think distracting flames, false cures, and of course, a balloon to Kansas. L. Frank Baum modeled the Emerald City after Chicago's 1893 World's Fair. 
which is something I believe we've discussed elsewhere on this show. But his real-world inspirations did not stop there. He was also inspired by the self-labeled professor T.S.C. Lowe when he created The Wizard of Oz. Okay, stop me if you've heard this one before. Sometimes you have an idea you believe is so good that you're literally bursting at the seams. And John Cleve Symes Jr. believed that his idea was the most revolutionary, most reality-shattering idea that had ever inhabited a human head. John also believed it to be more than just an idea, but a fundamental truth, a fact of nature which he intended to prove to the world. He was bursting at the seams with excitement and passion for this idea, and he would dedicate his life to it. But here's the thing about ideas. Sometimes you're wrong. John Cleve Symes Jr. believed that the Earth was hollow. More than that, he believed that there were other worlds inside of our Earth, kind of like a Russian nesting doll of planets. In his imagination, an adventurous human could get into these interior worlds through two holes in the Earth which had yet to be discovered. He believed that by traveling into these holes, people could find new species of plants and animals, and who knows what else. Was John right? Well, he was worse than right. He was wrong. Really, really, really wrong. But in his world of the late 1700s and early 1800s, it was believable. It seemed possible and it seemed exciting to others. No one really had much of an understanding of the crust and mantle and core that we now know is under our feet. In the end, John Cleve Symes would be largely forgotten, but his ideas were considered on the floor of Congress, discussed by great minds, and even aroused the curiosity of writer Edgar Allan Poe. If nothing else, his passion helped inspire science fiction, pop culture, and even the first explorations of the South Pole. Symes was born in 1780 in Sussex County, New Jersey, which is a beautiful place. I've spent some time there. He was named in honor of his uncle, John Cleve Symes, hence the junior suffix on his name. Uncle John had been a New Jersey delegate to the Continental Congress and served as an officer in the American Revolution. Nephew John, like most at the time, didn't have much access to education, so outside of his limited schooling, he spent hours in his uncle's library and learning from the impressive list of family friends who hung around the house. It seems like he had big ideas early on because he was said to bore his young friends with his explanations and theories on the turning or the revolutions of the earth. As a young man, he joined the army and served as an officer in the War of 1812. After the war, he married a widow with six children, had four more, and moved to St. Louis, earning money by outfitting the Western military with supplies. In the free time that a man with ten kids and a job could have, he got lost in research and his own thoughts about the mysteries of the world around him. The natural magnetism of the earth puzzled him, as did the migration of birds and animals when the seasons changed. Where did they go, he wondered. And what about the tides and currents of the ocean? What possible explanation could there be for these natural phenomenon? In the mid-1800s, many scientists around the globe were well on their way to understanding our incredible world. 
And of course, today we know birds and some other animals follow warmer weather, which is why they seem to disappear from certain locations for a time. We also know that the tides are controlled by the gravitational pull of the moon. And we know that the oceans are filled with patterns of movement, all of which are easily explainable now. But during Symes' life, most scholarship, most knowledge would have been out of his reach. Living on the frontier in St. Louis and not having much of a solid education, he was reliant on what the library had, which at the time was not the most current information. So his thoughts ran pretty far away from reality. In the spring and summer of 1818, a letter began showing up at libraries, universities, institutions dedicated to knowledge, and even at the homes of prominent thinkers. It read, To all the world, I declare the earth is hollow and habitable within, containing a number of solid concentric spheres, one within the other, and that it is open at the poles 12 or 16 degrees. I pledge my life in support of this truth, and I am ready to explore the hollow, if the world will support and aid me in the undertaking. He explained that he had ready for the press a treatise, a detailed explanation of his theory, to share as well. Surely everyone was watching their mailboxes for that. Then he continued... I ask 100 brave companions, well-equipped, to start from Siberia in the fall season with reindeers and sleighs on the ice of the frozen sea. I engage we will find a warm and rich land, stocked with thrifty vegetables and animals, if not men. On reaching one degree northward of latitude 82, we will return in the succeeding spring. Attached to the letter was a certificate of his sanity. Basically, a doctor's note saying he was in his right mind, if not a little kooky. Letter of sanity or not, he was mostly ignored. This just made him want to work harder, though. So he decided to take his hollow earth theory straight to the people. He had a model of his earth built and traveled around the country, giving lectures and telling people about how he believed the earth was penetrable. Now, if you think this was just some nutty excuse to get out of a house filled with 10 children, it was not. He was enlisting volunteers to join him in a mission to the North Pole. After a lecture, he'd get pledges from attendees to join when the call was made. He and a partner he picked up along the way met with politicians, hoping to get funding and approval for an expedition. But Symes was not a healthy man. After a few years of traveling and talking and convincing and standing up to criticism and just making the rounds, well, he was worn out. Had he led a polar expedition, those extreme temperatures surely would have bursted him at the seams. Just the same, Kentucky Senator Richard Mentor Johnson, a man who would later serve as Vice President of the United States, twice brought the idea of a mission to the North Pole for Symes and his partner to the Senate floor. Despite an interest in exploration and the possibility of opening up the waters to whaling, which was big money at the time, he was shot down at both attempts. Before long, the heartache of failure and ridicule and deteriorating health really took the wind out of Symes' sails. He lost a lot of momentum and passion for convincing people. It's not that he didn't believe it. He left this earth thinking that there was still unexplored inner planets underneath his feet. 
but his body just couldn't take it anymore. Perhaps the biggest impact he made in the long run was winning over the imagination and attention of Edgar Allan Poe. You might know him for the famous poem, The Raven, but the American writer was a pioneer in horror stories, mysteries, and poetry. And he was even the inventor of the detective story. In addition to all of these impressive accomplishments and gifts, he was also a pioneer in what we now call science fiction. His very first published story, MS Found in a Bottle, details the story of a ship that sank as it encountered a hole just like Symes had imagined. The details of the story are provided by a narrator who wrote down the course of events in excruciatingly slow, plotting, and really not at all panicked detail as his polar exploring vessel dashed headlong into a cataract, which is how Poe described the polar earth hole. Now, Edgar Allan Poe's only novel, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, also details the story of a man on a doomed ship, which makes its way to an inner world within our own. And of course, for many, it's impossible to hear anything about Symes without thinking of Jules Verne's story, Journey to the Center of the Earth, which has been made into books, cartoons, and movies, most recently in 2008. This work of fiction was directly impacted by the work that John Cleve Symes Jr. shared with the world and 100% believed to be true. John believed it so much that when he died and was buried in Hamilton, Ohio, his son had a monument placed above his grave. To the casual passerby today, it probably looks like a donut on a pedestal, but it is actually a stone globe with a hole passing through. A model of his hollow earth to which he dedicated not only his life, but now his afterlife. Hey, thank you for listening. This was a really fun episode to put together. I'm going to put some resources on the website that you may want to make use of. There's actually a cool video from one of my favorite websites. It's called The Kids Should See This. Every family should follow that page. It's awesome. Uh, But there's a video that shows very clearly how far humans have made it into the earth. And it's really, really fascinating. Super interesting. Also, there is a podcast that I am quite fond of called Boring Books for Bedtime, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is a very soothing voice reading boring books for you to fall asleep to. Um, But I was surprised to find in the feed that they have released two volumes of John Symes, John Cleve Symes Jr.'s writings on the hollow earth. So if you're ever laying in bed and you can't sleep and you want to read or have someone read in a very soothing voice what John Cleve Symes Jr. thought of things, then, uh, hey, plug in. I'm going to put the link on the website as well, thepastandthecurious.com. Now, we have Patreon people to thank, including a song. First, I need to thank Andrew Apostolos. Andrew, thank you very much. And Anna Ippolito, I'm so glad that you are out there as well, tuned in, given a listen. The same goes for you, Owen in Pennsylvania. You were excited to know that there's an Owen in my house. I'm always excited to know of other Owens as well. So greetings to you, my friend. And I also have to say some happy birthdays to four people. 
That song was written by a pair of kindergarten teachers in my hometown, if you didn't know, but you probably listened to that episode anyway. Oh, yes. Here's the happy birthday number one, Nathan in Ohio. Happy birthday, buddy. I know your birthday was on the 21st of September, and I'm glad that we could be a part of that celebration, if just, you know, about a week late. Anyway, we also have three more birthdays in one fell swoop. Eli, Antonia, and Bjorn Nagel in Seattle. You have October birthdays, and I hope that they are spectacular, wonderful, incredible days. Happy birthday to you. I'm so glad that you listen. I'm so glad that you are out there. I'm so glad that you are tuned in. Oh, I also need to thank Adele. I thanked your mother, Osley, last month, and I should have thanked you, Adele. Hello to you, my friend. And now, I have a song. I have a song for Beckett. Beckett keeps bees at school. You know, in the beekeeper outfit, but when he told me that he had a beekeeper outfit, or he had a bee outfit, right? I pictured him dressed up like a bee. I thought that was a funny thought, right? But then I thought about it and realized that wasn't what he was talking about. He also taught me two words in German, Strompanzerwagen, which is tank in German, and Panzerfaust, which is a bazooka, but it actually translates to like tank puncher, which is an awesome thing to think about. Anyway, I put it in the song. Hope you like it. Here it goes. Beckett wears a bee suit, but it's not black and yellow. Like his friends at school, you see, he is a bee-keeping fellow. Beckett wears a bee suit, and he thinks a submarine. He likes these German words I learned. Have you heard of Strump on the wagon, strump on the wagon, strump on the wagon and the pound of house. Strump on the wagon, strump on the wagon, strump on the wagon and the pound of house. Strump on the wagon, strump on the wagon, strump on the wagon and the pound of house. Strump on the wagon, strump on the wagon, strump on the wagon and the pound of house. Beckett wears a bee suit. It's not a costume, black and yellow. It's white with nets to protect his face because he is a beekeeping fellow. Well, all right. I'm Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being you. Thanks for doing everything good that you do. So keep it up. Bye-bye.